Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao, and I'm here with my co-host Sam Lee. Yeah, thanks so much, Tiger. Uh, my name is Sam Lee. I'm a junior in Princeton's economics department, and today Tiger and I are going to be interviewing Professor Rebecca Henderson. Uh, she's the John and Natty MacArthur University professor at Harvard. Uh, she's an expert on innovation, organizational change, and productivity. Her most recent book, Reimagining Capitalism, was named to the shortlist of the Financial Times and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. It examines how capitalism might be reworked so as to strive for a greener, more equitable future. She argues that business can and must move toward a critical rebalancing of the power of the market with democratic government. Because of the internet connection issues and technical difficulties, the audio quality is actually somewhat reduced. Uh, and the first question of the following interview is actually not the first question we asked Rebecca two weeks ago when we recorded this interview. Uh, Sam and I apologize in advance, but still hope that you could enjoy listening to Rebecca's wonderful thoughts on her book. We also look forward to inviting Rebecca back to Policy Punchline again sometime in the near future to continue this dialogue as we very much feel that it's an unfinished conversation and so many important issues are left undiscussed. This following interview should give you a very exciting overview of her book, Reimagining Capitalism, nevertheless, and we really hope that you'll enjoy it. So here is Sam and I's uh, interview with Professor Rebecca Henderson. You know, to start us off, could you give us maybe a brief overview of what led you to examine this question of reimagining capitalism? Why reimagining capitalism, this little narrow academic topic? I spent the first 20 years of my career studying innovation. And after a while, large energy companies started showing up in my office, asking me how they could transform to become more oriented towards clean and renewable energy. And so I began to work with them. And I got hugely interested in the clean energy transition. It seemed to me absolutely important and to be happening far too slowly. So I convened a group of my colleagues to together write a book called Accelerating Innovation in Energy, Lessons from Multiple Sectors. And we had some of the leading economists in their fields write chapters on what really drove innovation in chemicals, in agriculture, in computers, in semiconductors, in biotech. What did we know structurally about how industries changed and changed really fast? And the idea was to step back and draw some lessons for energy. And I will never forget the final conference for the book, which is still around. And I can tell you it's pretty good because I didn't write most of it. I just wrote the introduction. So it's, it's still a great book. Um, we had a final conference and we said, so what are the three big lessons? And one of them was that you have to have good federal R&D policy. So the federal government should be investing in the kind of basic research that spawns new industries. And that wasn't very surprising. And the second was, well, you need to make sure that entrepreneurial firms can enter the market because entrepreneurial firms trigger new ideas. Not very surprising. And the third, which also wasn't that surprising, but it was so strong in every case we studied, was you need a strong demand signal. That is, innovation responds to consumer needs. 
And when you look at the early days of the computer industry, for example, the government provided most of the early demand. They bought the first few computers. The Department of Defense was very explicit about why were they, they were doing that, and they wanted to spawn the industry and really drive costs down the learning curve. So they bought the first few computers. And the trouble with the energy transition is there's no demand signal because electrons that come from clean energy look exactly the same as energy that comes from coal or gas. And so there was no demand signal. So we ended up a place which is now commonplace. What we need is some kind of price for carbon so that we need to make sure that when you burn coal, you pay for the health and environmental damage that you're causing. And that means that renewable energy will look cheaper, which it is. And so that will be the demand signal and that will really trigger innovation. And I loved this policy. I mean, this is perhaps the only economic policy on which 99.9% .9 of economists agree. You know, you grab any economist, you say, what should we do about climate change? They say, price for carbon. And then we can argue about the implementation details, but, but they really agree. And so I became like deeply puzzled by why we didn't have a price for carbon. It was such an elegant policy. It would have made so much difference if we'd put it in place 15 years ago when I was writing this book. I think we would be halfway there to a carbon-free world. And yet we weren't. And most puzzlingly, business leaders were not advocating for a price on carbon, despite the fact that climate change is going to cause enormous damage to supply chains, to economic growth worldwide. And we had this perfect, perfect policy. Nothing was happening. And so that that threw me down this rat hole, which is I hope it's a very productive rat hole. But that's how I ended up here, which is why wasn't business stepping up and playing more of a role in driving this transition? And uh, as they say, you know, it's been 15 years. That's the story I've been trying to understand for, for much of my career. Can you, you maybe talk a little bit more about this? Because you have so much great research in your book. How is it that you know, the um, interests of society align with businesses so well? Well, they don't always align, of course. Not every social problem can be solved by business, but many can. Um, in general, there are a whole range of business models. One of them is what I call high-road employment systems. So we've known for almost 100 years that treating people with dignity and respect, giving them a decent wage and benefits, and giving them the power they need to make local decisions can lead to increased productivity and innovation. Um, what's exciting now is we have much more academic work in psychology and social psychology, giving us the mechanisms that make this true. And on the other hand, we have a lot of firms really experimenting with this kind of model. And why does it address social problems? Well, twofolds. It pays people better. These jobs are much better jobs. And it also creates, I think, civic agency. So people who feel supported and empowered at work are much more likely to get involved in politics and thinking of themselves as a citizen of the larger, the larger society. So that's one example where doing, doing good also can really you know, increase the bottom line. But there are much more basic examples. Walmart took a billion dollars to the bottom line 
simply by improving the efficiency of their trucking fleet. And that was a billion dollars a year straight to profits. Um, so just cutting costs. And it might seem like it's too good to be true, but we, uh, we see firms like KKR getting 15 and 16% rates of return on their investments when they put a new team into every acquisition they make to reduce water and energy use. It's just been, you know, energy use is typically only about 3% of the average firm's uh, costs. And so firms weren't really paying attention to it. It turns out when you try and take it down, you can really take it down practically halfway and, uh, and still make a very good return on your investment. We see consumers in some areas caring about sustainability. With some important exceptions, there are some demographics, middle-aged women who care about sustainability from Cambridge, and uh, some industries like food, where people will pay more for more sustainably produced products. But in many areas, if you give them a product or a service which meets their needs, which is as good as more conventional products, and it's also sustainable, they will switch their purchases. So we're seeing a company like Unilever, uh, their mission-driven brands are growing uh, more than 40% faster than their more conventional brands. And last but not least, employees want to work for companies that are tackling these big issues. A few years ago, a friend, uh, a CEO friend of mine called me up and said, Rebecca, you know, I think the sustainability stuff is bullshit. And I said, yeah, I know that friend. Uh, he said, but you know, everyone I'm trying to hire thinks it's important. So would you come and talk to us about that? And so many firms are finding that it is, it really does improve uh, recruitment and retention to be focused on these larger issues. Uh, so what's not to like? Lower costs, increase uh, customer willingness to pay, increase your, uh, increase your retention and recruitment, and increase the productivity and creativity of your workforce. Uh, so we have at Harvard maybe more than 300 cases on companies that have done the right thing and made money at billion-dollar scales. It's, it's not an unusual thing. Uh, Re Rebecca, may I? quickly push back on, on this idea just to buy a little bit just to play devil's advocate uh, because you said that profitability and social responsibility and also being environmentally conscious are not really in opposition to each other but what if we could say that larger businesses is easier for them to invest in renewables or to use renewables whereas for small businesses it's much harder to transform uh, in, in some sense and also uh, I, I still re remember reading I mean, a, a lot of articles and columns saying, you know, those ESG funds and ESG stocks are bullshit, right? They don't actually have the returns. And, and if everybody does, they, the returns really wouldn't be there. So uh, and part of me is still cynical. So I don't know. You should be cynical. Um, and the two points you've raised are quite different and both appropriate. So let's take the first. It's not Absolutely, I'm not saying all social problems can be solved by business acting to make money. Absolutely not. There are huge social problems that can only be solved if people act together to solve them. Uh, let's just think about climate change for a moment. I think there's good evidence that you can reduce energy use by about 30-40% in most organizations and save money while doing so. But that last 30-40%, that's super tough. We, I don't think we're going to address climate change, which, let's remember, requires remaking not only the power sector, but also the transportation sector, the food sector, infrastructure, construction. 
We're not going to do that with every individual firm saying, oh, I can make money in this transition. This is a collective action problem. Many problems can only be solved collectively. Think about inequality. Yes, individual firms can do better in, the, in who they hire and in reaching out to people of color and um, in raising wages, and there can be a good business case for that. Is that going to solve inequality? No. We also need to invest in education and healthcare and all kinds of collective goods. So um, your question is absolutely well taken. And in my book, I try and develop a theory as to how business action could help us solve those political problems, that collective action problem. Your other point, which is some ESG is bullshit, some ESG is bullshit. <laughs> um, you know, the measures we have so far are very imperfect. It's not at all clear that a firm scoring highly on ESG is actually a purpose-driven firm and is actually making a difference. But that said, the more recent research suggests that at the very least, there's no drag on performance from investing in ESG. And I think increasing evidence that it actually increases the resilience of a firm. So we're beginning to see aggregate uh, evidence of a correlation. Now, you could say, well, that's just the first movers. But is that the case? Uh, could it also be we're going to increase the resilience and success of the entire system? And so we would see what we would expect to see is aggregate economic returns increase or simply not collapse. That's another way of thinking about the, the returns to investing in these kinds of issues. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you discussed in your book was that we don't actually really have you know, sophisticated enough ESG metrics you know, one thing you talk about is rewiring finance, you're rebuilding accounting to be able to you know, really tell investors and tell um, CEOs, like, what is the impact of these programs, of these initiatives? It, it took us 100 years to develop modern accounting. And it will take us a little while to develop really robust ESG metrics. We've made some good beginnings. My colleague, George Serafin, here at the Harvard Business School, is a founder of the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative. They've just released a set of measures of impact of 1,800 major firms, and they discovered that a third of their sample are causing environmental damage greater than their total profits. So even with relatively crude measures, you can highlight really important factors that conventional financial accounts are not showing. But yes, do we have a ways to go on this? Absolutely we do. Is it vitally important? Absolutely it is. Because the only way investors will know whether a firm is really making a difference in the world, and the only way employees and customers will know that is if we have auditable, replicable, material metrics about every firm that's making a move in this direction. Yeah, just to you know, kind of pivot a little bit there, there's so much in this book that I want to talk about, but one thing that kind of runs throughout your book is this concept of purpose-driven leadership in which businesses shape their operations around a central meaning rather than blindly pursuing short-term profit maximization. How is it exactly that businesses can integrate purpose into their operations? It seems like a very nebulous, almost vague concept. Well, in general, when we say the word purpose, it sounds horribly woofly and vague. But what it's pointing towards is the idea that business should have a goal beyond simply making money. 
And in fact, when you think about most entrepreneurial firms and the early days of most firms, they're founded to solve problems. So a tech entrepreneur might say, you know, I really want to uh, um, run my computer five times faster. Or a uh, customer marketing person could say, I really want to get rid of plastic in the supply chain. I want to invent degradable plastic. Or think of Impossible Foods, which is a totally purpose-driven firm uh, where everyone just wants to take beef out of the diet and give people something that is as good, but as good to taste, but much better for them and much better for the planet. And, you know, most firms, when they're founded, they're there to create products and services that address real needs. That's what a firm should be. Why do we think capitalism is a great thing? Because we think it creates free and prosperous societies. And when it's working well, that's what it does. Creating short-term profit is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And so to me, there's no fundamental contradiction morally or even legally um, the fiduciary duty of a director of a public company almost everywhere in the world is care, candor, and loyalty to the corporation and the long-term health of the corporation. I think underlying, so, so this is no inherent conflict. I think what you're worrying about is Tiger's point, which is if I go after purpose, somehow I'll lose sight of the need to make profits. But that's what makes a successful purpose-driven CEO. They keep in mind the purpose of the firm. Why do we exist? Who are we trying to solve? What, uh, what problems are we trying to solve? And of course, I have to be profitable, otherwise I can't survive. So those two things can be integrally related. Um, and, and I think we see hundreds, if not thousands of firms operating in this way. So we, we know it's possible. Uh, Rebecca, I am gonna uh, put on my devil's advocate hat again and, and just ask you, a little bit more about, I guess, small businesses, because I, I, um, I, I know you kind of addressed part of my concern uh, in my previous question, uh, and but largely throughout your book and also throughout your career, you advise very large corporations that uh, end up having like trickle down effects on thousands and millions of families. But I also read a couple of stats, you know, in light of the COVID nineteen crisis, that you know, in, in the U.S., there's more than thirty million small businesses, and, and most of them are, you know, non-employers, sole proprietorships. Uh, and, and there are people who are doing part-time and only, you know, 0.2 million uh, businesses are considered as high growth venture backed. Some of those, you know, the Silicon Valley uh, businesses that we, we talk about today. So, so for those small businesses, um, I, I, I'm worried that they're in an increasingly anti-competitive, anti-innovation landscape because the corporations, the large corporations are getting stronger and stronger and bigger and bigger. Uh, and, and out of this COVID-19 shock, the, the larger corporations will be even stronger and, and the small business will, will be even in worse shape. So, so I'm really, really pessimistic uh, and not seeing the, the bright picture, I, I guess. Oh, so you've good reason to be worried. I've seen the same statistics that you have. My mother was an entrepreneur, so I understand how tough it can be to run your own firm. And I see the same numbers about firms being forced to the wall in COVID. One of the things I talk about in my book is why there's good reason to be enthusiastic about capitalism. I talk about the power of genuinely free and fair markets and their ability to generate innovation. But markets only do that when they're genuinely free and fair. And when companies get too large, sufficiently large that they can control the political process or set the rules of the game in their own favor, 
then it's no longer the kind of competition that makes me at least really excited about, about um, capitalism. And so I think as we look at what's happening to small firms, we have to ask, um, is the playing field still level? Are there barriers that we can get rid of? How do we make sure that we have an environment that really supports genuine competition? And so, you know, well-enforced antitrust law is a key part of a really free and fair market. You know, sometimes people read my book and say, oh, Rebecca, you think business can do everything and business can save the world? No, I don't. I think we will not solve the problems we face without a democratically elected, transparent, competent government, both nationally and every nation that can do that, and with some global agreements, making sure we have the rules of the road in place such that we have really free and fair capitalism. And one of the reasons I look to business is I think it's in business's interest to have this balance that free markets need the balance of strong government and strong civil society if they're to thrive. And so I argue that business people actually have an interest in making sure the rules are enforced. I mean, just to make this concrete, look at Facebook and Google. Let's just look at Facebook. One of the reasons Facebook has thrived is because there was regulation saying, you are not a media platform. We will not impose the rules of a media platform to you. And in some ways that was great, right? I mean, Mr. Zuckerberg is kind of made out like a bandit and he met some very genuine human needs. So, you know, there's reason to be excited about the firm. But it's also the case that Facebook appears to be a very important instrument of the destruction of societies across the world. I mean, one senior executive in the Philippines said to me, you want to know what destroyed the Philippines? Facebook destroyed the Philippines. Um, and the fact that they had no regulation has now got like everybody very, very, very angry. Not to, matter, not to mention destroyed the democracies and running the risk of significantly destabilizing governance in Europe and the US. This is not good in the long run for Facebook. It's not good in the long run for business. So I'm, I'm sorry, I've taken your small company example, but I think it's a, a really good example of, of the reason that capitalism needs guardrails, needs referees to make sure that the game is played in a free and fair way. So do you think what we're seeing now, I, I think the, the DOJ just came out with this antitrust case against Google do we need your trust busting for the, these huge tech companies? I think we do. I think it has to be done very carefully and thoughtfully. And if there's any way in which to engage business in this process of regulation so that the regulations don't create more problems than they solve, um, I think that's going to be very important. But absolutely, the idea that firms unchecked will create you know the best possible outcome seems to me clearly not true and the case of the tech platforms is a sort of exhibit number one we need better rules and i i think it's it's pretty clear to see how good you know well-enforced rules on business are good for society as a whole but what you argue that i think is really interesting is that having these rules in place is actually good for business and can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So if we take a step back and look at world history and the whole of the world, 
I think the data is very clear that the economies that grow fastest and most sustainably are those in which, which have a strong free market, but also have strong, competent, transparent, democratically accountable government and a strong civil society. This is a basic prescription in development economics. You know, if you're a country trying to become more developed and to really grow, uh, to grow more quickly, the standard prescription now is, yes, you need to open your markets. Yes, you need free markets, but you need decent institutions. And we talk about the contrast between extractive institutions, a few people own everything and basically keep everything for themselves, think Russia, and inclusive institutions where everyone is engaged, where biz the power of business is held in check by, by government and civil society, think Denmark or Germany, or think the US historically. And so in general, inclusive institutions give you higher rates of economic growth, more sustainable rates of economic growth, and much higher rates of social welfare. So longer term, more, more political stability. So that's great for business. The issue is that that's a collective good. Right. So we could understand if we're all business people, we could understand that, yeah, we'd be better off with inclusive institutions. But right now I have to make payroll and, you know, that's maybe I could work on that, but then that would benefit everyone. Why should I do that? It's a classic public goods problem. So you need collective action to address it in the same way we need collective action to address inequality and climate change. So why should we hope that business can help with collective action? Well, firstly, because some of these problems can be solved locally. And on a local level, it's business has helped solve collective action problems before. So I'm thinking of a group of business people in Orange County, California, who decided that they really needed to improve the quality of the local educational system because the lack of qualified graduates was hurting every firm in the area. Or I'm thinking about the large food companies trying to reduce deforestation because they're afraid that cutting down all the world's tropical forests will create enormous problem with their brands, as well as put the viability of their long-term supply chains at risk. And in both these cases, you have groups of firms coming together to say, let's work together to address this common problem. At the largest level, the institutional level, which is, oh my goodness, our democracy is coming unstuck. We need as a group to step forward and deal with it. I was able to find several instances in history where this has happened, usually after major disasters. I talk about Germany in the 1940s after the disaster of World War II. I talk about Denmark in the 1800s in the late 19th century. In both cases where business decided if they didn't get engaged, the whole society was likely to go south and take business with it. The, I believe that we are approaching those kinds of moments now. That if we let climate change go unchecked, if we let inequality go unchecked, if we let demagogic populism take over, that more and more business people can see that we're going to get to a very bad place. And so there's a clear collective case for action. The question is, will business step up and take advantage of it? One of the reasons I'm excited about purpose-driven firms is that they tend to be leaders in building these kinds of cooperative enterprises. Once you've nailed your colors to the purpose mast, 
you have strong incentives to have good policies that make sure everybody else has to follow you. If, you're, if you've decided you're going to use 100% renewable energy, you'd like everyone else to do the same thing. So that these purpose-driven firms provide a constituency which is already invested in improving the rules of the game. That, that's my theory. I'm not telling you it's a done deal, this is easy, we've got this nailed. I think we're in a desperate situation. How are we going to solve these massive public goods problems at global scale? And business as an institution has unbelievable power and resources, and as I say, an economic interest in addressing them. As you know, because you've had the chance to read the book, I think one of the most promising avenues may be investors. That our wealth is so concentrated, which in itself is problematic, but our wealth is so concentrated and the management of financial assets are so concentrated that you can put 15 people in a room and those 15 people can control 40% of the world's assets, 50%. Could they act collectively in the long-term interests of their asset owners? They could. The uh, head of the global pension fund in Japan, the largest pension fund in the world, he came to believe that it was his fiduciary duty to address the problem of climate change. So um, it's a lift, but I, I think it can be done. In, in that sense, then, do you think, well, it seems to me that we are making you know, some sort of progress on that end. We're seeing these massive voter information campaigns by Facebook, for example. Do you think that businesses are taking steps in this direction and that this is something that we could realistically see? There are businesses taking steps in this direction. Um, I've spoken to thousands of business people since my book was released six months ago. And one of the meetings that sticks particularly in my mind is with a woman who had just left BlackRock. And she listened to my talk and she said, but Rebecca, this is already happening. This is standard. You know, there's nothing new in this. I thought, whoa, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, the idea that people go, oh, yeah, we understand that's what we need to do. So there is definitely movement. Is it enough? Is it fast enough? Fast enough compared to what? We have to move as fast as we can on every front. So, yeah, I really think it could happen. Really, really. Re Rebecca, I know you have to go in around five minutes or so. So maybe Sam and I would, I, I, I guess, ask you a, a somewhat metaphysical question which, or, or comparative questions, which is that we've seen a lot of books uh, from the past year or so reflecting on capitalism. On, on our show, we've had uh, Glenn Wild talking about radical markets or, or Franco Milanjovic uh, talking about capitalism alone, uh, Katarina Pistor talking about the code of capital from you know the, the, the capital flow perspective and legal perspective. And you, I think I think made a very unique contribution in talking about businesses, which I think uh, a lot of academics and people in academia don't tend to understand, don't tend to communicate with. Um, and so, so compared to the other books on capitalism that we've seen, what do you think your book really adds? What are some of the perspectives that you really think our listeners should take away from? There are many excellent books talking about capitalism and how it should be fixed. Too often they spend most of their time on diagnosis, what is wrong, and then they lay out an ideal solution. But the path from here to there is not really sketched out in any detail, except 
here are the policies we need to get us from here to there. But we're not going to get those policies. It's not at all clear our governments can deliver them. And so I think what's unique about my book, I hope, is I try and talk through a pragmatic roadmap as to how people in business who really care about these issues can make money and drive systemic change at the same time. So it's a roadmap to systemic change. And I think every step on that road is already happening and is economically rational. And I think that's pretty unusual. I don't know of another book that does that. And I try and ground it in real examples of real people doing things. And I don't pretend for a moment that it's the right solution or the only solution, but it's a possible solution. I wrote it for people who wanted to go into business and wanted to make a difference to try and give some sense of what the arc of getting from here to there might look like. My solution is, in fact, not very unusual or unique. The kind of capitalism I'm trying to recover or rebuild is a very classic liberal capitalism. But for me, the question is, how do we get from here to there? And I try and sketch out a pathway that I think might take us. Professor Henderson, since you unfortunately were uh, winding down on time, you're at, at the end of all of our episodes, given that the name of our show is Policy Punchline. But we always ask, what's the punchline here in regards to capitalism, uh, extinguishing our burning world, the future of the economy, um, or whatever else? So my list of policy prescriptions would, I suspect, look very similar to those of many other guests on your show. If I could wave a policy wand, I would uh, put in place workplace protections, minimum wage legislation. I would put in place a, a price for carbon. I would try and get money out of politics. That I think would be my greatest priority and address problems in gerrymandering and voter suppression. So that's a fairly standard list. The policy prescription that perhaps is unusual is yes, I'm a keen proponent of enforcing antitrust law when it's needed, but I think sometimes companies do get together to try and support the social good. And so I think it's important to make sure that antitrust policy doesn't penalize firms like the firms in Orange County, California that are coming together to try and improve the local educational system, doesn't penalize firms in the Roundtable for Sustainable Palm Oil, who have all agreed to uh, buy only sustainably grown palm oil. So that's perhaps the most unusual prescription. I do not think that changing corporate governance is critical. I think there are ways in which we could change corporate law to make it easier to be a long-term purpose-driven company. Um, but that's not at the top item of my list. I think... Uh, I think, I think the other changes are more important. That was a great punchline, Professor Henderson. I mean, thanks so much for talking to us today. I mean, it's just been so nice reading your book, reimagining capitalism with you. Uh, so so I, I know you're on a time constraint. So thanks so much for joining Sam and I today. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much.